want people to feel bad. I want people to be inspired to completely rethink how they live with dogs, completely break the mold that the pet industry has fed us about who these animals are in our lives, recognize their incredible, complex, cognitive and behavioral and emotional potential and depth. I'm Phil Hatterman, and this is Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Today, author and dog behaviorist Kim Brophy explains the problem of treating your dog like a pet. They are so much more and deserve to be treated as such. If you're new to Dog Words, in each episode, we explore the world of dog care and companionship. We Save Each Other is the motto of Rosie Fund, which simply means the more we do for dogs, the more they do for us, and they already do a lot. You can support Rosie Fund by making a donation on our website or Facebook page. You can also contribute by making a purchase from the store on our website, buying a t-shirt at bonfire.com, or buying our note cards featuring Rosie and Peaches and our shirts on barkyours.com. Links are in the description, and these items would make great gifts for the holidays. Your donations and purchases help fund the Rosie Life Starter Kits that make sure these senior and harder-to-adopt dogs have some of the items they'll need in their forever home. Any donation amount is greatly appreciated, but here are some popular levels. $30 provides a collar and leash for a Rosie Life Starter Kit dog, and $100 covers their entire kit. You can also support Rosie Fund by downloading, subscribing, rating, and most importantly, sharing dog words. Follow us on social media, even if you aren't looking for a dog. Watching and sharing the videos helps our channel gain exposure, bringing awareness to our cause and giving shelter dogs much-needed attention. Our free Rosie Fund YouTube channel offers great videos of Rosie, Peaches, and shelter dogs looking for their forever home. Peaches is mentioned in this interview, and links to some of her videos are in the description. In recent episodes, I've mentioned our foster dog, Vinny. I'm thrilled to announce that he found his forever home and is very much in love with his dad. He's settling in very well and becoming a more balanced, confident dog. Before he left our home, he did pop into this episode a couple of times during the interview, so you may hear some grunts, growls, and barks. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions, especially if you have an idea for a topic or guest. Go to the podcast page at rosyfund.org to share your thoughts. Next time on Dog Words, we catch up with our friends from Melissa's Second Chances at their cat cafe. Yes, Dog Words is literally going to the cats. The mission of Rosie Fund is to provide humans with the resources and education they need to give senior and harder-to-adopt dogs a better life. We thank you for joining our mission. Joining us today from Asheville, North Carolina, is applied ethologist, certified dog behavior consultant, and family dog mediator, Kim Brophy. Kim, welcome to Dog Words. Well, thanks for having me, Philip. Glad to be here. I don't know how many people have seen either your TED Talk or other uh, exposure you have online, but I will link to your TED Talk in the description for this episode, along with links to your website. But for those who aren't familiar with your approach to dog behavior, dog training, if training is the right word, first tell us how what you do might be the same and or different than people's traditional understanding of our interaction with dogs. Yeah, so I I think it's really important to kind of put where we are as a culture into a chronological and historical context. And so most of us living right now don't remember a time where dogs were anything really other than pets. Some of us might have some recollection of dogs actually being used for the things that they were for hundreds and thousands of years. And some of us may have experienced dogs in third world countries or less developed nations where the dogs are still free roaming. But the vast majority of people alive right now are submerged and saturated in what's been a culturally conditioned concept that a dog is by definition a pet. And what's fascinating is that there's this, you know, 20 to 40,000 year history that humans and dogs have had where they've co-evolved and there's this symbiotic relationship between our two species where dogs have been artificially selected to do all these highly specialized behaviors and it's 
very specific conditions to make them like niche specialists so that humans could exploit their ability to hunt and track and herd and protect livestock and move livestock and rid our settlements from varmints like rats and foxes and things like that. And now we're kind of living in this reality where people don't need and therefore want dogs to exhibit all of these once really valuable behaviors. And as a matter of fact, all of the natural behaviors that dogs had even before all that artificial selection, and then all of these highly specialized behaviors that we've selected them for are now the very things that we characterize as behavior problems in the modern dog population, the pet population, because you bring all those really amazing behaviors that dogs are capable of doing and you stick them in a little box called your house and they turn into quite frankly, even though it's hard for us to swallow, captive animals in our homes, as much as we love them, what's happening is we're having what an ethology is, or a particularly applied ethology, is you're having a lock and key issue where the uh, niche uh, of that animal is not able to be filled in that environment. And so the dog then experiences chronic frustration, disorientation, confusion. They might express certain behaviors in our environments of living with them as pets that then we want to punish or we want to train away. And so few of us have this kind of understanding of that context of dog behavior historically. So as an applied ethologist, we're concerned with what happens to any animal, not just dogs, in captivity where uh, the animal is living under direct human control, where nature is going to have this awesome, perfect system of checks and balances where every species on earth is a highly specialized and attuned key to fit that lock of the those conditions because that's the process of evolution like humans often do we get in and we meddle with things because we like to play god and we like to say this is what we want this is how we want to shape the dog's behavior we've been conditioned to this idea that there are sweet little minions that want nothing more than to lay at our feet and do our bidding and um now we're kind of coming to this breaking point with dogs in the 21st century where behavior problems have been going through the roof for the last 10 or 20 years and particularly in the last five as our conditions get more restrictive, our expectations more unrealistic, and we continue to be told by the pet industry that it's all how you raise them. And if you just do this and this and this, they will do everything you want irregardless of their nature. So the approach that I have, and thank goodness it's now a growing movement in the dog behavior industry, and we now have close to 1,200 family dog mediators worldwide that are in developed nations trying to bring this content and information to the public and their communities. But this idea that we have to look at welfare above obedience, and we have to understand what contributes to an animal's welfare so that we can make sure that we are addressing the source of all these behavior problems rather than just tinkering with their expression and manipulating them. We have this snapshot perspective, like you said, of our lifetime or recent generations of our interactions with dogs. And we think, well, this is how we've been treating dogs, you know, training them and controlling them. You know, my parents, my grandparents, as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. Versus thousands and thousands of years that got us to this very brief eye blink moment Right. That we're using as our justification for yes. our evaluation. It's almost like the uh, sitcom or rom-com trope of the heroine who falls in love with a bad boy and then wants to change him. You know, right. Now you're going to wear a cardigan instead of a leather jacket. And right. <laughs> we're going to drive a sedan instead of a uh, Harley. Well, this is what's great about him is his, his uh, boldness, his independence, his style. <laughs> but you need to have him and control him and you're going to turn him into something he's not. Right. And it's obvious when you're watching the rom-com, it's like, well, this is not going to work out. She should not Mm -hmm. be doing this. And we don't see it in ourselves with the way we're treating dogs. Right. I mean, that's exactly why I took that approach that if your example in the book, um, my book, Meet Your Dog, of looking at it like a relationship and thinking of it like a compatibility issue. So it's not that there are good breeds and bad breeds. There's suitability and um, fitness, like the same cornerstone evaluation that nature would be having. Is this fit to these conditions? That's evolutionary fitness. Does it work? Is it the right tool for the job? Right. Right. 
well, that whole concept has been kind of thrown out the window. But And our whole idea is you just take that square peg and you just jam it in that round mm-hmm. hole and it'll shave off all those sharp little edges on the way in. You know? Mission accomplished. And, and so, Right, exactly. And then and then somehow the goal of success, our measure is, look how obedient they are, look how compliant, and frankly, how disconnected from their own autonomous natures we've, we've made them to be. And so it's like the argument in the industry has just increasingly been, this is the way to train dogs. No, this is the way to train dogs. And everyone has these camps where they're beating each other up and arguing about, this is how to train dogs best to be obedient. And no one stepped back and go... And, and asking, but why? Like, why is this happening? What are these behaviors symptomatic of? What's the source of them? And how can we get to the root of the problem? Which is frankly, just as much our common practices and expectations as anything else. Yeah, it's, uh, I just keep coming up with analogies. It's unbouncing Tigger. Yeah, right. In the Winnie yeah. the Pooh books. It's like, well, we, yeah. then they, he's not Tigger anymore if we unbounce him. Yeah, we, it's like, well, that's that's too much. That's hyperactive. That's disruptive. And um, I just got back from. But it's what um, tiggers do best. Right. Well, and, and that's the thing is that literally the very core of the things that we've selected these dogs to do are the very things that we're presenting trainers with as behavior problems because we don't understand those historical points of reference. And um, I just got back from presenting at the Aggression and Dogs Conference in Providence, Rhode Island this last weekend, and it was so exciting to hear the the conversation actually shifting in the mainstream of the industry but it's also it's it's quite daunting my talk was kind of pessimistically titled screw the pooch because the idea is is that we've really cornered dogs evolutionarily to where they can't get themselves out of it because we don't let them reproduce autonomously enough to let nature solve it generationally and we don't let them live autonomously enough to where they can adapt to even their own conditions to make their own welfare better. And yet the rise of all these aggression based or flavored behavior problems, if you will, are being reported by the public increasingly to, to professionals, you know, begging these individuals, help me make this behavior go away. And the irony again, is that most of those behavior problems are literally the things that we've developed dogs to do for all these thousands of years, whether that's predation, whether that's protection, protection, whether that's controlling the movements of other animals through like herding behavior, livestock control, we experience those things as massive problems, Mm -hmm. but they're very essential to the dogs. If I have a behavior problem in myself that's caused because I'm in a toxic relationship, whether it's in the workplace or a personal relationship, I can set boundaries. I can remove Mm -hmm. myself from that relationship. Mm -hmm. I have these options. And like you were saying, we restrict dogs from living their lives. They don't get to set boundaries or we don't let them set boundaries. We don't give them the option of extricating themselves from a relationship. In fostering dogs, it's so easy to fall in love with a dog, even one that has behavior issues, and Mm -hmm. so hard to let go of a dog. Mm-hmm. I love this dog and he needs a home and I want to keep this dog, but you have to recognize as a foster, I'm not the best family for this dog. This dog mm-hmm. needs a more active family or a less active family, more room, less room, whatever, something other than what I provide. I'm just fostering it until we find the fit. When you adopt a dog, yes, you should make a lifelong commitment to that dog, mm-hmm. but that commitment isn't to keep the dog is to do what's best for the dog, to care for that That's dog. That's right. That's right. And while with fostering, it's already framed in your head that this is temporary. And as much as I love the dog, help it to find its home. But when it's, this is my pet, this is my companion, we have to make this work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you do. But on whose terms? Right. Well, and you know, it's really sad because I feel like, I mean, it's nobody's fault, right? It's not culture's fault. Sure as heck not the dog's fault. And it's not any specific individuals in the pet industry's fault. It's kind of like this idea got marketed starting a couple decades ago about the whole like concept of a pet dog and what they're supposed to be in our lives. And then it's kind of just developed its own inertia to where we don't stop and question it. So in the public's mind, like there's all these different breeds of dogs to choose from. 
And just like people selling cars, right? I'm mm-hmm. not saying all breeders are kind of doing this, but they have this conflict of interest about being really frank with you. Like these are the really challenging things about yeah. this breed or the things that you might want to keep in mind that won't suit your condition. So if these sound like there will be a problem in your home, don't get a dog from me. And everyone instead says, all our dogs, all, our breed is the perfect pet. We breed for pets. We mm-hmm. breed for pets, regardless of what their historical background yeah. is. Yeah, you and like so, Ford Escapes? We have all these right. Ford Escapes. We got to move this inventory off the lot. That's You've selected right. a Ford Escape because that meets your needs. Right. Like, well, and then they won't tell you that, you know, Ford Escape is not going to hold like your massive family of eight or whatever because yeah. it's too small. So then people end up making these selections based on just kind of being attracted to a breed, which, of course, we're all subject to being that vulnerable and attracted to what we think is cute. But then it's like we end up in these situations where the dog's needs aren't being met and the person and the dog then are in this predicament where sadly too, what's increasingly happening is that there are less and less ideal homes for a lot of the dogs that we have in the population because our environments have changed so much you know, our modern world is experiencing a rate of environmental change that's unprecedented in the history of the planet. And so like nobody's evolving and adapting fast enough to keep up with that. Even if you are letting natural selection do its thing, then you prevent dogs from being able to do that. So there's still these old keys made for old locks because we have this romanticism about preserving these breeds. And then they're not fitting in with this modern world where people are largely indoors, largely sedentary, largely not interacting with the dogs. And instead to these stupid little devices we all carry around all the time. Oh, that um, kills, it, it kills me when I see someone walking their dog on their phone and they're looking at their phone. Yeah. Yeah. They're not even with their dog yeah. in that moment. Yeah. And when safety they're issues them. aside right. for the dog. Right. Just the fact that you're not enjoying this time. Right. You're, yeah. you're, you're not a part of this relationship. And I think that's increasingly how people want pets in their lives. It's peripheral. They love them, but they, they're Walking not is a chore. Walking them. is the same as I need to take it to the vet and get right. shots and, and all right. of that stuff. And I need to clean up its poop. And, and so, yeah, walking is just one of those chores as a price to pay for, I get a snuggle with it while I'm watching Netflix. Right. <laughs> but what no, if it's no. a border collie bred to work a 14 hour yeah. day on a farm and he's like not into Netflix and he wants to go do really exciting, fun, complicated things. Yeah, that should be the payoff of having a dog is That's the right. walks, the playing, those yeah. interactions, Frisbee, agility, whatever works for that dog. And then there are dogs who are a Netflix dog. Okay, yeah. fine. But then make sure it's that dog if that's what you're doing. Right. So we've, we've identified the problem. <laughs> I hope to God you have a solution. Otherwise, my listeners are going to be very disappointed with the rest yes, of this podcast. Well, you know, I, I said when I was presenting at the Aggression and Dogs Conference, uh, of course, I present this massive problem. And the reality is, is that it's going to take an army to find the solutions because they're going to be widespread. So the important thing is that we, the first thing is we have to digest and accept the reality of the situation for dogs. If you have listeners that are, you know, in the public and they're not professionals, we have a one hour version of our full course that's called the dog's truth that paints all of this in a nutshell and really explains it and really breaks down the 10 different genetic working groups of dogs so that you can have an understanding of your own dogs, the dogs in your neighborhood, your community, et cetera. So you can have a better appreciation of that big picture. And then of course we have a full professional version of that. But all of that said, there has to be a multi-prong approach to this. First of all, breeding, right? We have to recognize that breeders are selling dogs as products to fill a massive demand for dogs as products and that we have purchase power there, right? So we can say, now that I understand all of this information from watching the dog's truth or from just maybe even hearing some of what we're talking about today, then I can make a choice when I go to decide to bring a dog into my life to 
select a dog that's going to be fit for my conditions. And then I can be sharing that information and experience with others. So frankly, putting some pressure on breeders um, to move away from physical breed standards that oftentimes are not in the dog's best interest, either behaviorally or physically. There's a lot of traits like the brachycephalic breeds where they are not able to breathe as a matter of normalcy for certain breeds. They're not able to respirate and cool themselves very well, but we think it's cute because they snort and snore and all that stuff. So those types of things, and then things like uh, orthopedic issues in terms of the angulature of, say, a German shepherd's back and how that's going to create structural problems and maybe chronic pain for those dogs. So that's one piece of it, right? Really thinking about breeding. Yeah, because breeders are responding to the marketplace that wants these arbitrary standards met. That's right. The breeders are making choices. The breeders, some breeders actually do this make choices based on this dog has hip dysplasia, this dog has hip dysplasia, I'm not going to breed these two dogs together. That's right. I have two healthy dogs, I'm going to breed those dogs. That's this, right. This dog has a healthy characteristic, I'm going to promote that in my breeding, and yep. I'm going to identify, and I'll, I'll link to this, uh, and I'm going to screw up the name, it's, it's Eye for the Blind, I believe, um, mm-hmm. that we interviewed a couple years ago, talking about the dogs that they train, they don't look for those arbitrary standards because the economics of it is you don't want to train a dog that's very expensive to sell or give to a vision impaired person who then has to replace it in four to six years. Mm -hmm. You want a healthy dog for them for eight, 10, 12 years. Mm-hmm. And so they look for breeders who are breeding dogs based on what's the healthiest thing we can do for this breed. How can we yes. protect this dog? And I'm yeah. sure those breeders, even without the economic considerations, would want what's best for the dog. But to have that extra incentive of there's a marketplace for yeah. healthy dogs that aren't going to need surgery in six years that this vision impaired person is now going to have to find funding for or right. replace, which is very, very yeah. expensive. So yeah, the the marketplace it's been demonstrated has as much power, if not more, than just the emotional dog shopping experience. Oh, that's cute, or that's what my aunt had when I was a little kid and I loved that kind of dog, and so I'm gonna buy that. So let's look at what is a healthy dog and encourage that in the breeding. That's right. And that need that pressure needs to come from us as well as be accepted by breeders. And as we're breeding for healthier dogs that work better in our lifestyles, we have to let go of breed standards. So in a certain breed of dog, say we're breeding for mellow or border collies, we really like the trainability. We really like, you know, the fact that we can use this dog in all kinds of sports and stuff. Like we just love border collies and we can meet their energy needs, but maybe the kind of hypervigilance and some of the controlling behaviors are things that really don't work well in most families because of small children. So we're willing to let go of some of the physical traits that go along with that. So their ears might get bigger and heavier as they become less hypervigilant and high arousal. And we have to be like, that's okay. Border collies can have floppier ears. Like that's not a big deal because a lot of those physical standards and the whole idea of like purebred dogs, like there's really ugly actual historical roots to that stuff that go along with like, you know, the Victorian era and then kind of particularly beefed up post-World War II with this whole idea of like pure race, pure blood, you know, and people don't realize that like purebred dogs are all to some degree or another inbred. And so of course there comes with a smaller gene pool, more risk of recessive traits being passed on that aren't going to be functional and healthy for the dog. So along those notes, one really concrete thing that's happening right now is something called the functional dog collaborative. And uh, one of my colleagues, but she's a geneticist named Dr. Jessica Heckman has started that program and is working with breeders all around the country. And I believe around the world to those same ends that we're talking about. Like, how can we breed dogs for the world we have instead of continue to breed dogs for the world we no longer have and then, you know, beat our heads against a wall and wondering why we're having problems. So from the genetic end, that's a real solution. Is there any discussion or a movement that would move beyond the labeling by breed? Because if you have in your mind, I want a border collie, Not all Border Collies have the traits that you want in a Border Collie. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and just because of 
you know, the way breeding works, there's no guarantee that this is what you're going to get. And so to go back right. to the, the car dealership analogy, if it's a used car lot, you could walk on that lot saying, I want a Ford Escape. Mm-hmm. I had a Ford Escape was my last car. I want a Ford Escape. I love the way they look, the way they drive. But you're on this used car lot and they can point out that, uh, have you driven a, a Toyota Highlander? Maybe a Toyota mm-hmm. Highlander is better for you and not be just committed to, no, I've got to have a Ford or I've got to have a Toyota. I have to have yeah. a Kia. Let's look at what does this unit, whether it's a car yeah. or a dog, what does it do? What are its characteristics? And forget about the badge on the car or the breed of the dog. Well, so there is a huge movement and it's complicated. So in the sheltering world, there's been a movement in recent years to stop putting any breed labels on dogs. And there's good and bad things to this, right? The good thing is, is what you just described, which is people might be more open-minded on first glance to where they wouldn't be otherwise. But the problem with moving away, at least right now with the current gene pool that we have, where we have so many dogs with such a large percentage of a particular breed or breed group in their DNA is that let's say you get a dog and you've never had a herding dog. And so you go and you've always had like gun dogs, like labs and, you know, goldens and spaniels and things like that. And you've never experienced what a herding dog is bred to be. So hypervigilant, micromanagey, control freak, bossy. Does that mean they are going to be that way? Absolutely not. Genes are not predictive, but just like anything else, there's like a standard deviation with the target for breeding for a particular set of traits you are going to have some that are more outliers, but you're going to have this majority of the dogs in a particular type of phenotype, a particular type of genetic presentation physically and behaviorally that are going to express higher than likely express certain behaviors compared to other breed groups. So what we tell people, this is why we use the legs model. So the legs model that I developed that's referenced in my Ted talk and in my book and all my presentations is the same set of variables that would go for any animal on earth's behavior, their phenotype, their overall combination of factors that contribute to who they are, their learning is going to matter. Their environment is going to matter. Their genes are going to matter. And their internal self conditions are going to matter all to various degrees, depending on the dog. So I think someday if we let go of breed standards, now we will get to a point where it's irrelevant, but right now humans have created all these highly specialized keys for highly specialized lives. And one of the reasons people are giving dogs up so much and dogs continue to go through this cycle of rehoming or even be behaviorally euthanized is because we're preserving those highly specialized keys for locks we don't have, not educating the public about that history, as I was talking about at the beginning of our little chat. And so people then, when they see a behavior that's completely normal for that type of dog, they're appalled and they're like, oh my gosh, what is this? This Mm -hmm. is abnormal. It's a pathology when it's actually the very essence of what that dog has been historically. So it's this interesting contradiction we're in where, yes, we need to move away from the valuing of breeds and the emphasis of that. But in the meantime, we have all of these dogs in the population where people do need to be educated so their expectations can be adjusted a little bit accordingly. Can you hear the growling? No. The dog I'm fostering, Vinny, who's about a 70 plus pound pit mix, uh-huh. has not spent much time in my office. And now he's in here. He's growling at the Pink Floyd poster. Is he? <laughs> oh, how interesting. He's like, that what is, is very scary looking. Yeah. I am not okay with this. I, I think we should cover this up. Yeah. Do, do you need to go outside? So possible solutions are addressing the way breeding currently is structured or accepted. Some thoughts about how people approach the dog adoption, dog selection process. So that seems like a start, but Mm -hmm. the problem is, is much broader than that. Is there steps that we need to be taking as a society beyond just what individuals are doing? Yes. So I'm glad you asked about that. So, you know, environmentally, right? So here we are as like a pet having culture, completely divorced from the historical reality of all these dogs with these amazing potential that we just want to take home and put in our little boxes and make them obey. 
we need to start as a society changing some of our kind of common practices. So for instance, right now, the idea is we walk a dog around the block three times a day, and then we may take them to the dog park or daycare. But for a lot of dogs, that doesn't begin to provide the relief that they need and, and what's considered, you know, values in terms of welfare from like the five freedoms some people might be familiar with, opportunities to express natural behavior, which are essential for any species to have good welfare. We need opportunities to express those natural behaviors. So her tracking, hunting, supervising, whatever that might be in the dog's genetics. And so increasingly then people are trying to come up with good solutions where it's not what can often be the overstimulating walk around the block three times, which really just jacks your dog up. They're still on a short leash. They're not able to actually follow through on those instincts. So they actually can become more frustrated. It's just you're you're Um, turning the crank in the uh, jack in the box, but you're not letting the lid go. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly what is happening. And we're seeing it just accumulate at this point. So sniff spot is one of the concrete, amazing things that now exists that didn't exist in a few years ago. We've had um, them on. Yeah, we've had them on here. Have you? Yeah. So we've partnered with SniffSpot formally and we're promoting each other's work. And so SniffSpot is absolutely amazing. David, I believe, is the owner's name. He was great. Yeah, great guy. And so, you know, people can find out about that basically Airbnb for dog yards and they can be huge, expansive areas in the woods or they can just be someone's small backyard that's a postage stamp. But it provides your dog a safe place to explore autonomously their environment and to follow whatever instincts are coming up for them. And in different spots, because if you like to read, there's only so many times you can read Read the same catcher in the ride. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So the enrichment comes from the different experiences and then also the opportunities to engage with environments in different ways because they're going to have different scents and different kinds of stimulating kind of signals in the environment for them. There's also someone that I'm working with who's trying to develop an even more comprehensive version of a type of sniff spot thing where they have professionals there and they're working on helping the dog develop better emotional regulation skills, as well as have those outlets of natural expression, while also simultaneously educating the humans about the species that are in that natural habitat. So we're kind of getting this valuing of nature, which is really at the heart of what dogs and people need these days. It's funny how there's like this sister research with people like uh, Richard Louvre and Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. A lot of the themes and concerns that they're seeing with human mental health in the 21st century are the same phenomenon, but in spades in dogs, or maybe just it's more obvious and they're they're unable to kind of suppress the, the expression and the symptoms of it in dogs. Years ago, I just had this striking realization that dogs were like a canary in the coal mine for humanity. They're like an indicator species because we've mm-hmm. drugged them along, but they're a more sensitive being and one who's not able to kind of suppress some of the symptoms of their mental health problem. Yeah, we recommend people just take more walks, but like we were talking about before, actually be taking the walk, engage with the walk, not just I'm outside on my cell phone. That's not a walk. Uh, No. Look into forest bathing, which is not a bathtub in the forest. Right. But forest bathing where you're immersing yourself in that. And Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about a dog that is driven to herd or is energized or satisfied by hunting. Doesn't mean Mm -hmm. you have to buy sheep. Doesn't mean you have to buy a shotgun. And go to South Dakota to hunt pheasant. There are ways that you can meet those needs creatively. Well, and it's really, it's so interesting. We heard a, um, one of the uh, presenters at the Aggression and Dogs Conference, she presented right before me. Her name is Simone Mueller and she's from Germany. And in Germany, this is what I mean about like societal concepts and, you know, shifting them. In Germany, part of pet dog training is predation substitute training where they teach families how to take whether it's that modified predation of a herding dog or a completed predation genetically of a hunting dog or a terrier they work with the families to find functional ways of both providing an outlet of expression for the pieces of those motor sequences but then also being able to have control over the kind of completion of it so that the dog doesn't need to actually catch that 
squirreled. It just ran across the park. But you are engaging with the dog in that first piece of the predatory sequence in a way that is endorsing and exciting. And you're participating like, oh, yes, we're hunting the squirrel. And actually, what's fascinating is that the dog doesn't need to catch the squirrel or move the sheep in order to find the satisfaction in that experience. They've actually done studies to demonstrate that dopamine is both a motivator and a reinforcer for behavior. And so just engaging in the behavior, there's actually higher levels of dopamine in the brain before the dog ever acquires the squirrel. So acquiring the squirrel is not a necessary component of hunting the squirrel for the dog to feel all that wonderful bath of the dopamine that they experience. Like, oh, I was born to do this. I was born to hunt the squirrels. They can just have access to the first part of that predatory sequence to improve their welfare. So those kinds of paradigm shifts are really what needs to happen. Yeah, we take a dog on a walk to frustrate it. Like here is a squirrel and then jerk on the, the leash. It'd yes, be like essentially. every day my wife drove me to the golf course and we sat there and just watched people putt and on the driving range. And then she drove me back home. It. Right. Or taking a kid to Disney World and <laughs> yeah. not letting him ride any of the rides. Yeah, we're just going to walk through, look at all these nice rides. No, yeah, yeah. Don't get in line. Don't buy any cotton candy. Yeah. We're going to show a dog a squirrel and then move it on. Yeah. And, and we're coming up with more and more ways to suppress their natural inclinations to play golf and go to Disney World and do I all was the bred things. to play golf. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's in your DNA, right? Yes. Um, and so, you know, it, you know, it's funny, too, because it reminds me of even things like the movie Fight Club, right? Like, I mean, I don't know how many people have seen that movie, but it's just one example. Yeah, and don't worry like, about spoilers, because if you haven't seen Fight Club yet, the movie's been out for, what, 12 years? Right, right. Yeah. Go, go, go see Fight Club. Just because it's really interesting in terms of, like, human history, and you think about how long altercations and physical brawls have been part of, like, human history. And it's basically about, you know, these guys that get so frustrated with their boring, modern corporate lives or whatever, that they... They need an outlet of expression and they just think it's super fun to beat the daylights out of each other. Now that that doesn't sound particularly exciting to me. And I'm not saying dogs need to have the opportunity to beat the daylights out of each other, but the idea that we have more in us than just sitting behind a desk for, you know, eight hours a day. And the dogs have more in them than just sitting at our feet while we're sitting at that desk for eight hours a day. And that our world right now is so different than it has ever historically been And it is creating a lot of welfare issues and frustration and mental health problems for them and for us. Well, I love that you referenced Fight Club because for me, some of the objections to Fight Club were it's glorifying violence and subversiveness. But I think one of the messages was you have this generation of adult, and in this case, men, who never learned how to control and channel appropriately that part of their DNA. So now you're 30, 40, 50 years old, and you've never learned how to appropriately use the aggression Mm -hmm. that is undeniably part of you. It's natural to be angry, to get frustrated, to want to lash out. Then how do you appropriately use that emotion? And if as a young boy, you never learned how to do that. Right. And this is a little off track and I'm not going to ask you to either endorse or reject this thesis. But when I was a kid, you would fight, you would get hurt, you would bleed, you would wrestle, but you didn't hate the person. You might be angry at the person that you're wrestling with because they maybe fouled you a little hard on the basketball court or Mm -hmm. through a dirt clod when you're having a dirt clod fight and their dirt clod hit you in the face. And well, now it's throwdown. But because they're punching at you and you're punching at them, you know what that pain feels like. Mm-hmm. So as you grow up, you know, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't mm-hmm. hit someone unless this really matters. I'm defending myself or I'm defending someone or lives are at stake and not just to randomly throw punches or hurt someone or do something dangerous right. because you've dealt with the consequences. Yeah. When you were young enough that you really couldn't do too serious a damage. 
And you're practicing the finer tuned ritualized signaling and the nuance mm-hmm. of all that. I mean, that's one of the things that we talked about at the aggression and dogs conference is that like, we just have this idea that all aggression and that's a weird label by itself culturally, but all aggression is bad mm-hmm. when actually, if you look at all the primary categories of behavior that any species needs in order to survive in nature, aggression, but ritualized aggression, largely, mostly, is part and parcel and essential for those different things. So we have hazard avoidance. We need to be able to be like, get away from my baby. This Mm -hmm. is my baby I'm protecting. We need to be able to protect ourselves when we're threatened through ritualized displays. Aggression is not the same thing as predation, but we humans experience predation as aggression. We'll characterize it as that, just being able to track something down and then consume it for your own caloric intake. And then the, uh, you know, that reproductive and social piece, again, kind of tying into the example of protecting your young or protecting your social group or your social group's territory so that you can reproduce. All animals in nature use different varieties of ritualized signaling that we would characterize as aggressive. And then they practice and fine tune those signals all in this economy of behavior that saves energy so that most of the time you're not actually trying to hurt the other. You're not actually trying to get in this like full blown altercation that results in severe injury or death. Actually, nature selects against that kind of expensive application of aggression and it's selects for the careful, just like less is more fine tuning of the signaling. But now we're not even endorsing in dogs or children, frankly, the development of that skill set of that ritualization. And that comes with a cost. Which means not only do you not recognize others' boundaries, you don't know what your own boundaries are. And so all of those traits that you just listed have appropriate and inappropriate expressions. Yes. And without playing with them, exploring them, you're not going to find the boundaries. And without crossing the boundaries, you can't just safely do it. There has to be risk so that when you cross the boundary, you learn the consequences. And that's how you develop compassion and empathy. I know what the effects of this behavior are on me so I can have compassion and empathize when it happens to you whether I'm the cause of it or if someone else is the cause of it, that I can, I can help you. I can sympathize with you. I can be a part of your support because I can empathize with what you're feeling. I can have compassion. But if you don't explore those traits, those emotions, those feelings, you're going to be underdeveloped and you're also going to be at risk for sort of adverse expressions of those traits when you are cornered when you have no choice but to have an outlet because I've been attacked. You can't yeah. go through your life just, I'm just going to avoid any right. space where I might be attacked or yeah. um, emotionally or physically. Mm-hmm. And then when you are 47 and then that happens, you don't know how to cope with it. You don't know how to react. And we're getting a little off dogs, but actually I think we're getting more on dogs because then if you have a dog that's never learned that, and this dog is one, two, five, 12, however old, and you're expecting it to suppress that, even though you have no experience dealing with this emotion or this trait. Right. No. And that's the thing is that's what we're doing now. I mean, you know, as someone who's been seeing clients with their pet dogs and their families for more than 20 years, it's so fascinating how culturally we've developed less and less tolerance for these really normal behaviors and processes that you described such that, you know, you might have a new puppy come into the household. Who's just harassing the daylights out of the older dog in the household, trying to learn those boundaries, trying to learn those signals. The older dog might draw those boundaries in a completely appropriate healthy ritualized way for the puppy and be like and just you know and then the puppy rolls onto its back don't hurt me and the big dog is standing over them with their you know the older dog with their mouth on their neck and holding them down until they feel them be like okay you know and then we get the call from the person saying my old dog is being aggressive towards my puppy because they don't understand the importance of that process and how to support it and cultivate it in a healthy way even daycares which in theory are for the development of those kinds of skills mostly they walk around with the water guns and anything that they see that's that appropriate signaling that might create some conflict or need to draw boundaries, they're stopping it before the dogs are able to learn from the experience themselves. 
among the other links I will put in the description of this video are some of our late Peach's Delight interacting with Oakley, the Griffin wired-haired terrier, when he was a puppy. Our friend who was fostering Oakley would bring him over because her own dog, Rosa, could pretty much take it or leave it with, with Oakley. <laughs> it's like, oh, mm-hmm. he's, he's here, whatever. But Peaches would, I think this is the appropriate use of the word aggression, would mm-hmm. aggressively socialize Oakley. Mm-hmm. Do everything you just described. Swat him, mm-hmm. hold him down, get him to respond appropriately. And then when he did, she would put herself in a submissive posture. Yes. Like you right. have now learned and earned the right yeah. to be the dominant dog, and I will show you my belly mm-hmm. because I can trust you now. And just the way she would socialize and, and mama him, not in a, before we started recording, we were talking about Pink Floyd, the wall, mama him, not in a Pink's mother kind of way yeah. <laughs> of overprotection and shielding, but in a, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to let you know what it feels like to have a mouth on your neck, a paw across your snout. Yeah. But then I'm going to let you do it too. Right. And so we're fostering that social education, which, you know, here's another variable, right? More and more people only have one dog in their household. More and more people bring one puppy home to a house where there's just humans. And then the puppy is not learning their culture their dog culture and signaling and communication and skill set. Then they go out in the world and they don't have those social skills. One of my other co-presenters at the Aggression and Dogs Conference is my colleague, Simon Gabois, and he is a phenomenal ethologist and neuroendocrinologist and conservationist who teaches at Dalhousie in Canada. And he gave a presentation that included a really amazing discussion on roles and social groups and how essentially there are all these different dynamics and different different roles that the individuals within the group have and in order to have a stable and successful and functional social group in the conditions that they're living in in the wild. And it's so odd because we treat dogs like we don't really fully embrace them, most of us, into our social group. We don't really say, here's your role. This is the part that you bring to the table. We kind of have them like peripherally to our social group and our family, and they're supposed to somehow figure that out. But that piece alone of not having a purpose by the time you are an adult, in nature, that would spell your death right? I'm not valuable. I am expendable. I don't have a purpose here in this group. Well, that means you're doomed, right? And Mm -hmm. yet a lot of our dogs are running around with this low level chronic anxiety. Like, what am I doing? What is my role? Why am I here? And we're like, just look cute and sit by the fire. And it doesn't make sense to them. Yeah. It's like having a girlfriend just to go to parties. (laughs) At home, you just sit there and be quiet. Oh, we have a party invitation. (laughs) I need someone on my arm. Right. Get out your party dress. Right. We're, yeah, right. we're, we're going but out. I feel like a hug and a cuddle. Come on, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, just sit over there and look adorable and, and, mm-hmm. and that's your lot, you know. And like then you just seem to be crying a lot. <laughs> well, I guess I'll just have to put you in the kennel. Yeah, right. Because, you know, you're complaining about your situation. And, yeah. you know, Here, as you I sit in your room and, and I, I'll close the door and I'll check in with you in an hour. Right. But that's what we do. And it's so weird. And then we feel all guilty once we start digesting the reality of the situation. And I don't want people to feel bad. I want people to be inspired to completely rethink how they live with dogs, completely break the mold that the pet industry has fed us about who these animals are in our lives, recognize their incredible complex cognitive and behavioral and emotional potential and depth and engage with them accordingly in recognition of their modern predicament because they need us. Like the only way out for them is through whatever solutions we provide. My hope, if not assumption, is that anyone who listens to my podcast does so with undivided attention. But if they're kind of drifting in and out or focusing on something else, they might hear us using all these analogies about human interaction and human relationships and think, oh, I need to treat my dog like a human, which is not what we're saying. What you have stated explicitly more than once is we need to treat dogs or honor dogs with the same emotional investment that we do humans. 
mm-hmm. but then treat them as the dog that that dog is. That's right. So the, the whole girlfriend analogy that, you know, or trophy wife, it's not that, okay, that means you need to treat all spouses or partners the same. Right. No, you need to treat them with respect and honor them for who they are and love them for who they are. And that's right. if they like to go to parties, go to parties, but maybe they like to stay home and stay home. Or if that doesn't work out, then maybe that relationship is not for you. Same right. thing with dogs. Treat that dog as the individual that it is. Right. And recognize they're not less than us because they're another animal. Like the whole fear that we've had historically in the scientific community of anthropomorphizing is kind of funny because you're like, the truth is we're all animals, right? Like there's not this huge, big fat line between humans and animals the way that we think that there is. And so there's a lot of room to say, how would you feel if when our brain structures are so entirely similar to so many animals, when basically we all have the same kind of neurotransmitters and hormones going on in so many of these different brains and as social animals, furthermore, sharing all those commonalities. But as you say, the distinctions are as important as the similarities, right? Like being comfortable with that, what feels on the surface to be a contradiction, you know, that's the beauty of it is that every individual is a different recipe of their own legs and needs to be met and accepted for who they are with that unique recipe, all things taken into consideration so that we're not trying to say, you're supposed to be this circle peg in this round hole where the dog actually is that square peg. We're saying, I accept that you're a square peg and I'm going to either have to stretch the size of that round hole to make room for that square peg, or I'm going to have to find a square hole to put that square peg into, but I can't make you what I want you to be because that's my expectation. And that's the modern problem. We treat dogs like they're cell phones that have all these different features that we've selected that when they don't meet the expectations, we take them back and we say, well, this one's broken. I want a new one. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying everyone just reflexively does that. I think it's part of our subconscious that that's a, a good dog will do everything that you teach them and tell yeah, them to do. You can customize it just like you can your phone. Exactly. Yeah, I want all these apps on on my dog. Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, frankly, there's a lot of trainers in the industry that need to look in the mirror and say, wow, I'm participating to that that narrative. You know, I'm out there putting on my website. I can train any dog, any breed, any age, any size to do anything you want because I'm so amazing. It's like, all right, let's get off our little God pedestals and let's be humble and helpful and work towards this collaborative improvement of welfare for both species rather than continue to entertain this kind of perspective and attitude and approach of dominion, like we have some right to make them universally compliant. It's almost concerning how much we've mastered dog training. Like humans have gotten so good at training. We've hacked how learning works. Mm -hmm. And that's terrifying because it means that we have this power to condition them even against their will. And then we measure how good it is based on how effective it is. But effective conditioning doesn't equal good welfare. So marketing is the great example for us in our own brains. I can be effectively conditioned by all kinds of things that I see on the television and internet and my phone. I am marketed. I can be reinforced or punished. I can create all kinds of classically conditioned ideas and associations. Is that good for my welfare? What a lot of that marketing is doing in my brain? Probably not, but it's working. And so we need to stop having this value that, well, this training approach works so well. He went from barking at those other dogs to shutting up and healing and walking in a straight line, not even smelling the earth as he moves. Well, that's now a really unnatural dog moving through space in your neighborhood. It's easier for you. So you've been reinforced for the training, but is that actually better for the dog? That's the kind of stuff we need to start asking. We had a, Emily Pantoja of Max Canine, she's a dog behaviorist in Wales. And I don't know if she explicitly subscribes to your approach or if it's just um, the evolution of people progressing towards this enlightened perspective. But we talked about how, yes, she works with dogs, but the hardest part of her job is convincing the humans that their perception is not appropriate or accurate Mm -hmm. that this problem you've identified with your dog that's not a problem it's a dog right 
Right. Right. It's like this coffee yeah. grinder is so loud. Could you fix it? It's like, well, no, that's what, a co- that's what a coffee grinder does. Right. Well, and that's the thing about like why it is important to go back to that conversation about like moving away from breed labels. When the border collie is chasing the crazy, you know, unmanageable, not organized toddlers around the house, nipping at the backs of their shoes and their clothes, trying to get them all to finally sit down and be quiet. There's nothing wrong with the dog. It's a border collie, right? So it grinds. It makes that noise. You know, it wants to nip and control the movement of the things that are some environmental contrast and create order out of that chaos because that's what we bred into herding dogs. Now we're just like, yeah, but I don't have sheep. So just, again, go sit there and look pretty or come with me to the party and look pretty and perform your little tricks so Mm -hmm. that I feel cool about all the stuff you can do. And it's like, that's the stuff we have to start really looking at and saying, so if we are going to accept them and love them, we have to accept and love them for all of who they are. It's not like, it's like in a relationship, we can't have buffet style. I like this and this and this about you, but I want you to do this and this and this instead, or stop doing that. We take it or we leave it. Right. And that's, that's where we need to start coming to with our dogs where any training we're doing is only to help give them better coping skills for the world they found themselves in. Any training is there to serve welfare and cohesion of both parties. Yes, you should not accept your dog pulling your turkey off the counter on Thanksgiving. You don't have to accept that, even though the dog is a scavenger, but you don't judge their inclination to do so. You make understandings and contracts of sort with the dog about if you don't jump up and take things from the counter, I will occasionally share what is on the counter with you. If you jump up and take things from the counter, you will get further from the counter every time that I'm cooking. Dogs, like all animals, are going to do what works for them. If you change the conditions to say, yes, I accept you, so here's the compromise. It's more like parenting or good upper management than it is this kind of like species delineated dominion dynamic where they're less than and we're better. Because a good manager knows how to get the most out of their employees. Instead of, I'm just going to make you do this. I, I hired you for this job. So do this job. Well, actually, this person's skill set could be better deployed this way. That's good management. A good coach changing their offense or defense based on the personnel that they have. And if you think, well, I am a higher species, I am a human, I should have dominion. Well, maybe take that perspective and think, well, as a higher species, maybe you are more adaptable. Maybe your lifestyle could evolve and change to accommodate the wonderful things that this dog has brought into your life Mm. that you would not have experienced otherwise, instead of turning that round peg into a square peg or vice versa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe learn that your shape can change too. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that art of compromise and realizing there are species we're having a relationship with. This is why it's just for anyone who's kind of curious about that label family dog mediator, we're trying to create a little bit of a movement in the industry to move away from the concept of dog training and towards family dog mediation, where both parties are meeting in the middle based on what's going to work best. And yes, you're the upper management or parent in the situation. So you have to find how can I adapt, right? You're looking for those opportunities. The dog doesn't have the agency to do that. But instead of this idea of I hire a dog trainer and then they come in and they make my dog obey Mm -hmm. me, that very top-down approach, it's more collaborative and we're really appreciating the richness of that dynamic for what it is. Yeah, the expectation in mediation, whether it's a legal issue or Uh, marriage counseling isn't a mediator saying, okay, you're the right one, you're the wrong one, so let's fix the one who's wrong. It's, okay, let's understand the complexities of this situation and Mm -hmm. come to some sort of understanding of how everyone can benefit. If there are uh, dog trainers out there, dog owners, just families who want to learn more about this than what we could possibly cover in just one podcast, how do they access what you have to offer, Kim? The best place for them to go is familydogmediation.com. That is our new Family Dog Mediation Education Center website, where currently we have our public-facing course and our pro course available. And 
soon all of the presentations from our first annual conference from our students. Those one-hour seminars will be available a la carte and in bundles as well that cover a variety of other amazing topics presented by incredible colleagues from around the world. So they can find all kinds of amazing stuff there. And then also they can find us on Facebook if they want to look up Kim Brophy. And then we have a Legs Facebook group for those members of the pro course. Of course, I will link to the website, the Facebook, uh, some of your YouTube videos, and all the resources and episodes that I have referenced in this interview. Kim Brophy, I can't wait to have you back on the show. This episode has just flown by too fast. Applied ethologist, certified dog behavior consultant, and family dog mediator, whoever has a dog who couldn't use a family dog mediator. I think all of us could. I thank you so much for being on Dog Words and look forward to having you back. Thank you again so much for inviting me. I had a great time. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you've been listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Thank you to Kim Brophy for sharing her wonderful and important insights. Use the links in the description for more information and check out the Dog Words episodes I referenced. I mentioned how Peach's Delight played with Oakley to teach a puppy how to be a dog. She is on leash in one video because she was just a couple months out from an ACL surgery and was not yet allowed to go ripping around the yard, which Oakley was trying to lure her into doing. Those videos from the Rosie Fund YouTube channel, as well as some of Peach's other puppy interactions, are linked in the description. The Bernese Mountain Dog and the Chocolate Lab featured in two of the videos are both bigger than Peach's, but I assure you, they were still puppies at the time. Bear in mind that Teaches is a tween or a teen in all of those videos, but is still so full of life. Remember to consider senior dogs when you're adopting. Next time on Dog Words, we visit Melissa's Menagerie and Second Cup Cat Cafe. A big thank you to alternative string duo The Wires, featuring cellist Sasha Groshong and violinist Laurel Morgan Parks for playing the wonderful music you've heard on today's and previous episodes of Dog Words. Supporting The Wires supports our mission. Learn more about The Wires, including their concert schedule at thewires.info, and download their music on iTunes. This is the perfect time to download or order their wonderful CD of holiday music, Winter. Over the next couple of episodes, you'll hear some of those selections right here on Dog Words. Check out fiddlelife.com and learn to play fiddle and cello fiddle online from Laurel and Sasha, even if you've never played before. Join Laurel and Sasha as they explore new music and delve into the inspiration behind each work as hosts of Sound Currents on 91.9 Classical KC. Click on the Sound Current links in the description for more information. Go to rosyfun.org to shop and get links to our social media. As always, please download, follow, rate, and share dog words. This helps us with sponsorships, then Rosie Fund can help more dogs. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions via the contact form at rosyfund.org and let us know if you would like to be a sponsor or a guest of the Dog Words podcast. Thank you for listening to Dog Words, and remember, we save each other.